2: a podcast about the history, nature, and folklore of Scotland. I'm Jenny, an apex predator.
3: And I'm Annie, a happy herbivore. Well, then,
2: you had better watch your back, Annie, because in this episode, we are going in search of the ultimate happy herbivore hunter, the wolf. Oh, no. Oh, yes. For as far back as there have been humans on this land, there have also been wolves. The Grey Wolf was once common in Scotland and all of the British Isles, but the last stronghold for the wolf was Sutherland, a large area of land that covers much of the Scottish Highlands, stretching from coast to coast. And so, we're going to explore Sutherland in search of the once mighty wolf.
3: Well, that's exceptionally handy, because Sutherland is another underrepresented area on our interactive stories map which shows the locations that we've talked about in each of our episodes. This series, we're exploring the places we have so far missed, and Sutherland is definitely lacking.
2: What a coincidence! (laughs) You can visit our stories map on our website and explore Scotland in a whole new way. Whilst wolves are still found in the heavily forested areas of Europe today, they have been extinct in Scotland for many centuries. But to understand the story of the wolf in Scotland, we have to travel back in time to when wolves were not only common, but the rulers of this land. At the end of the last ice age, around ten to 12,000 years ago, the great ice sheets that covered all of Scotland slowly receded. And in their wake, life followed. Over thousands of years, the scoured, barren landscape was gradually transformed. First, lichens spread across the rocks, breaking them down and creating an incredibly thin soil. But all it takes is a little soil and boom, soon there's grasses, shrubs and hey, even little trees start to take root.
3: Hello, baby trees. Hello, Annie.
2: (laughs) (laughs) By about 7,000 years ago, these little trees had paved the way for the great forests that covered all of Scotland, from the coastline to the uppermost limits of survival on the high mountains. Even Orkney and Shetland were covered in a healthy birchwood forest. Depending on the geographic location, the forest was composed of different tree species. But because we're looking at Sutherland, Let's look at the forest that thrived there. By 5,000 years ago, a huge woodland called the ancient Caledonian forest was thriving in the highlands of Scotland, covering a huge 15,000 kilometres squared. That's about 20% of all of Scotland. The Caledonian forest consisted mainly of Scots pine, rowan, birch, oak and juniper trees much the same that we see in the native forests of this area today. The forest would have been thick with ferns, mosses and lichens, and a whole ecosystem teeming with plant life. But not just plant life. There would have been countless birds, swarms of insects, mountain hares, goats, beavers, lynx, brown bears and, of course, grey wolves. Alongside these wild animals, we also have a population of Neolithic humans. These people are beginning the transition from a nomadic hunter-gatherer way of life into a settled agricultural one.
3: So as new agricultural knowledge is spreading throughout the land, our hunter-gatherers who were living within the extensive forests became Neolithic farmers. Once a group of hunter-gatherers had settled in one spot – they began altering the landscape around them. These folk used their stone axes to fell trees for construction materials, to build their settlements. Whilst doing this, they also cleared swaths of forest for agriculture and pastoral use. Over time, the relationship between humans and the forest changed and the extensive woodlands became something that they would manage and exploit. This was not a fast change but it began a pattern that has not been reversed for the thousands of years that have followed. And prior to this as bands of nomadic humans
2: moved through this ancient landscape they would have dealt with the near constant threat of the wolf. Packs of these intelligent strong and vicious hunters moved like ghosts through the dense forest and could attack at any time. But... When humans began to settle in one spot, the threat of the wolf increased greatly. For not only did clearing woodlands encroach upon the wolves' habitat, but the people also began keeping livestock. Domesticated cattle, goats and horses were all kept upon the land that they cleared, and this meant that these poor animals were essentially sitting ducks for wolves. Like a
3: wolf fast-food restaurant. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. McWolfers. McWolfers. I'll have a McWolfer muffin, please. With fries. Unfortunately, (laughs) potatoes hadn't been introduced at this point, Jenny.
2: (laughs) And as the human population grew to the increase in food provided by farming, they cleared more and more forests, thus reducing the wolves' habitat further whilst also keeping more and more livestock. And so, as this cycle continues over the centuries, as humans become farmers, wolves became the number one dreaded enemy. They lived in the shadows of the forests at the edges of human settlements, the threat of their attack a source of terror, fear, and woe. The interaction of people and wolves in Scotland is a complex story of violence. And by looking at the far north of Scotland, we can trace the interactions of these two predator species as they lived together on the land. And luckily for us, this area of Scotland has an exceptional amount of artefacts, remnants, and folklore about the wolf.
3: Let's begin in one of my favourite places in the bones. Now, there are plenty of sites where we see a mingling of human and wolf remains, often coming together accidentally. For example, in Sutherland, in the Inchnadav Bone Caves, also known as the Sint Bone Caves, we see an incredible snapshot of the biodiversity of prehistoric Scotland. These limestone caves get their name from the amazing amount of bones that have been excavated from them amongst these are neolithic human burials the bones of wolves brown bear reindeer swan puffin wildcat arctic fox ox pig and a lynx they're all intermingled together in the bone caves
2: wow i mean i do hate to say this during an episode about wolves but forget the wolves man The coolest bones in these caves are the possible polar bear bones that were found there in 1927. These polar bear bones were dated as being almost 19,000 years old and were thought to have been washed into the cave by the meltwater of retreating glaciers at the end of the last ice age. While it's not been completely confirmed that they are polar bear bones, it is highly suspected. And it's not thought that humans ever lived in these caves, nor that the many hundreds of bone fragments found were placed in here by humans. But rather, these caves have acted like a strange sieve, catching remnants of the life that has wandered in, or washed in, or been dragged in by prey, or even placed in by mourning humans. And it seems to have caught all these fragments and condensed them down into this amazing collection of ancient life.
3: Places like this help position humans as just one species amongst many. In these caves, the hunters and the hunted, predators and prey are all preserved by nature. I find sites like this fascinating. As an archivist, I could be kept awake at night, wondering how we could preserve history for the next generation. When so much of the history we want to keep is so fragile and then nature sweeps along and presents you with this perfect and crucial time capsule of biodiversity and it connects all of these different species across borders and it's so powerful and much more truthful than any curated collection we also see ancient people's
2: connection to the wolf in their art In Inverness Museum, there's an incredible Pictish stone depicting a wolf. This wolf stone was carved approximately 1,500 years ago and was found just 30 miles north of Inverness, in Ardross. It shows a wolf in motion, stalking, perhaps hunting. It has swirling, distinct muscles. Its ears are flat and its mouth open. It looks as though it's flowing through the rock with ease. This carving shows enough clear understanding of wolf anatomy that there's no doubt whatsoever that whoever made this stone art had seen many a wolf before. Unfortunately, we don't really know what this wolf carving would have symbolised to the Pictish people. But we could take a good guess. It could have a spiritual meaning for the people or it could have been an emblem of their community. In the same way that animals are used in heraldry to represent a family, the wolf may have been a Pictish tribe's way of celebrating themselves, of marking their territory, of symbolising their strength.
3: The wolf stone was also found alongside another stone that was carved with a deer, so perhaps it's showing the predator and prey relationship, something that symbolises the balance of life, the deer and the wolf. Oh, I like that interpretation.
2: I'm still hoping that one day they find a Rosetta stone of Pictish carvings and we can finally translate all these mesmerising, unknowable symbols.
3: That's when we find out that all of our assumptions about these ancient ancestors carving these deep spiritual meanings into the stones are just flat out wrong.
2: Yeah, the real meaning of the wolf is something super petty. Like, it's just an insult to the neighbouring tribe that they smell like old, wet wolf fur.
3: (laughs) In fairness, it's a savage insult, because (laughs) old, wet wolf fur smells awful.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Annie, it's not just the smell of wolves that we have to worry about. It's also the smell of dead bodies. Because the stench of a slowly rotting corpse was said to attract hungry, scavenging wolves.
3: Well, full points to you for the most disgusting segue of all time. (laughs) (laughs) And also, this is really, really intriguing because a lot of human-wolf interactions we see written down in Scotland relate to the idea that wolves would dig up the recently buried bodies of humans to eat for their wolf dinners. Or sometimes the wolves wouldn't even wait
2: to dig up the bodies. There's a few different historical references to wolves eating the fallen warriors on battlefields. For example, in the 13th century Orkneyenga saga, it describes the aftermath of a battle between the Norse and the Gales in Skye. And it tells us, in the wake of this bloody fight, Then was heard the dismal howling of the grey wolf o'er the corpses.
3: Wow, as if going into battle wasn't scary enough. You also had to contend with wolves prowling around the sides of the battlefields, awaiting their dinner. That sounds vicious. It is, but as horrible as this
2: is, it's the grave-robbing wolves that seem to have dug themselves further into the cultural imagination.
3: This was clearly a fear that people had, because there's a lot of old burial grounds in Scotland that were specifically chosen to be in a place where hungry wolves could not reach. Islands. For example, in Loch Ereble, right up on the north coast of mainland Scotland, we have two islands to look at, Eilin Hore and Horn. Both are reported in the statistical accounts of the late 1700s of being burial places that were intended to
2: prevent the plundering of wolves, which at any one time infested the country.
3: People are using water as a natural moat to prevent the wolves from accessing their recently buried. However, by far the island that has had the most attention for this particular use is Handa. In the same records, we read that, It may be remarked that wolves
2: were at one time numerous, and, to avoid their ravages in raising bodies from the graves, the population resorted to the island of Handa as their place of burial. The Isle of Handa lies just 300 metres off the far northwest coast of Sutherland. It is surrounded by towering cliffs and crashing waves on all sides, with just a few sandy bays where it's possible to land a boat. Although it is uninhabited by humans now, with the final residents leaving in 1847 due to the potato famine, it is, however, inhabited by many bird colonies. But importantly, the 300 metres of water separating Handa from the mainland is enough to ensure that no wolves have ever set paws on the island.
3: In the mid-1800s, a writer named Eliza Ogilvie wrote rather romantically about the island of Handa as a sanctuary for burial for the folk who lived in Adra Chilis on the mainland. Shall we do a few verses from this poem, Jenny? Let's take turns. Ooh, yes, I love when I get to be a
2: romantic Victorian
3: poet. It's called The Wolf of Adrachilis.
2: To Handa's Isle we go, our graveyard in the deep. Where the tombs stand all a-roll, safe in that rocky keep. And never a
3: foot of man or brute
2: disturbs our kinmen's sleep. Thus every
3: grave we dug, the hungry wolf uptore and every morn the sod was strewn with bones and gore. Our Mother Earth denied us rest on Edra Hillish shore.
2: The lean and hungry wolf, with his fangs so sharp and white, his starveling body pinched by the frost of a northern night, and his pitless eyes that scare the dark with their green and threatening light.
3: The savage and gaunt werewolf that never was nursed in nest, that holds a witch's heart under a shaggy breast, for human hurt and human life that nightly goes in quest.
2: To Handa's isle we sail, whose blood-red cliffs arise, six hundred feet above the deep and stain the lurid skies, where the mainland foliage never blooms and the sea mist never dries.
3: haunting, isn't it? I kind of want to go (laughs) to (laughs) Handa. It's actually, Handa is very popular with bird watchers now and when doing research for the episode, I read a report from the Highland Council about the remnants of the graveyard in Handa and there's so few stones, there's just kind of one big flat one and the main concern of the archaeologist in the Highland Council who had seen it was that Nothing had been put up to add context to the graveyard and they were concerned that people could be having picnics on this one remaining grave slab. I'll put the full poem as a link in the episode description if anyone would like it. I was aware of the wolf avoidance burials on Handa because this very romantic poem had solidified Handa in the cultural imagination as the main burial island, but there were loads of them.
2: I know that you call it a romantic poem because it was written during the Romantic period and it represents this sort of unreal, romanticised image of the Scottish Highlands, but I can't help imagining some poor fool misinterpreting this and choosing this poem to read to a romantic love interest in the hopes of wooing them over. <laughs> here's a super romantic poem about corpses being dug up by wolves and the desperation of a small community in the (laughs) islands. hey it would probably work for you actually you're like yeah that's what I mean (laughs) you're like more bones
3: if they presented me with a really impressive whale bone (laughs) at the same time (laughs) that they had scavenged from a lovely beach I I would melt we could definitely get ChatGPT to write us a romantic wolf poem.
2: Okay, that's that, yeah, we're doing that now. Join our <laughs> Patreon to see Annie and I dressed as wolves reading a ChatGPT romantic wolf bone poem. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Though there are legends of burials on islands all over Scotland because of this same fear of hungry wolves, our poet, Eliza Ogilvie, adds some quite fun mythology to this particular story.
2: Man, I don't know, Annie. It sounds like Eliza's just buttering cheese
3: over here. Isn't there enough lore in this already? There's no double dairy here, Jenny. The folklore that our Ogilvie puts forward was that there was a very old woman who lived on the banks of Loch Stack. She lived between the silent waters of the Loch and a large shadowy stone cairn. Every day she watched the village youth as they lived, laughed and loved. And she looked on from her lonely cairn and she felt bitter that she was not laughing, living or loving. So she glared with envy on these local youths. Because she was always giving them a really nasty look, everyone avoided her cairn. She was known to be so angry they just didn't want to bother her. Her whole presence became a warning, a tale for misbehaving children. Then, suddenly, one day, without a word, she vanished. Everyone in the village was secretly quite relieved that she had disappeared. However, peace didn't follow. Instead, a fierce storm hit and the skies erupted. But worse still, after the storm, the wolves came forward. They desecrated the graves of the village's ancestors, unearthing them in a monstrous hunger. The locals were horrified by the ravage of the wolves, and could think of no other explanation for the violent storm and the woeful wolves than a curse from that angry old woman. They looked to one another and they said she must have been a witch. That's when the village came to the unanimous decision that they must bury their dead across the sea on the island of Handa, outside the power of the witch. So, with heavy hearts, they sailed across the turbulent waters to Handa, carrying the remains of their ancestors. But, from then on, whenever they entered their boats to carry the bodies of their dead... The wolves of Loch Stack would howl upon the shores, where the waters held the secrets and haunting memory of the old witch. You
2: know, I think it might be quite fun to be a wolf witch.
3: I relate. I read this story and I just thought, lovely Cairn? What a great place to live. Wolf friends? Yes, please. To me, this folklore just feels like a way to dislike an isolated old woman who has good taste in decoration of her old cairn. I would
2: happily move into an old stony cairn in a heartbeat. You know, just live bolder, laugh harder, love cairnfully. <laughs> 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 I might get that made, put that on a t-shirt. <laughs>
3: although wolves may have occasionally had a weed dig at some graves, we never blame the old hen wife who lives by the loch. She's collecting stones, not
2: piling bones. That's Annie's job. And on a vaguely related note, if anyone is a fan of taxidermy like me, there is in fact a stuffed wolf in Inverness Museum, poised as though it's digging something up.
3: It feels a bit harsh that there's not a bone in that glass display cabinet with the wolf. Someone give that wolf a bone.
2: Just preferably not a human one.
1: (laughs) Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Unfortunately for all, the story of wolves and people in Scotland tend to revolve around hunting. As we explored earlier, wolves sometimes hunted livestock, and so humans hunted wolves. Wolves.
2: By the Middle Ages, the wolf and human populations were really clashing and we see the rise of professional wolf hunters whose job was to control the wolf populations.
3: In the records we can see that there were wolf hunters being employed by Scottish monarchs and large landowners to protect their livestock. And then there was also value in killing wolves for their pelts or for exchange. Hector Bois wrote that an early Pictish king, Darvadilla, suggested that "...the slayer of one wolf to have one ox as his reward." Which seems like a massive trade to me. Just one wolf for a whole ox? Though no, Darvadilla is considered a legendary king, not a real one. So perhaps we need to take that decree with a pinch of imaginary salt. However, real Scottish monarchs did introduce acts to spur up wolf hunting. So this was a thing that happened, you just probably weren't going to get an ox in exchange for your wolf. Inflation has just
2: destroyed the wolf hunting economy, let me tell you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Over time, the wolf became more and more persecuted. Its habitat was severely reduced by human activities, and with the loss of its habitat, so the decline of the food source for the wolf also comes into play. On top of this, the wolf was hunted extensively, and so, by the 1700s, they were all but wiped out. There were, however, a few wily survivors that continued lurking in the last forests.
2: The last wolf in Scotland was said to have been killed in Sutherland. There's many different versions of this story, But I've chosen the one told by the head forester of the Duke of Sutherland in 1848 to John Francis Campbell. By the time this story takes place, the people of Sutherland had almost forgotten the time of Wolves. The beasts became mere memories, a haunting story told by the old folks by firelight to scare children. Yet every so often, a large paw print would appear in the earth by a riverbank. Or perhaps some livestock would be found suspiciously gnawed. But one day, a woman in a wee town had her worst fears come to life. It was a mother's worst nightmare. Her child had vanished. Desperately, she called on her community to help search, and so everyone came out of their houses and scoured the hills and glens for the bairn, but unfortunately, as each day passed, hope waned. For three frantic days and three dreadful nights, the mother searched and searched, but alas, she could find no sign of her infant. He was only a wee toddler, far too small to survive by himself. By the end of the fourth day, however, a local youth was wandering home when something strange caught his attention. As he walked past an ancient cairn, which was normally silent, he heard a wail from within the stones. The call echoed out to him, and so he edged closer. As he did so, he discerned yet another sound, but this one was even more unsettling. Despite his fear, he plucked up his courage and he peered down into the burial cairn. And at the very back of the dark passage, he could see the wee lost boy nestled in between two furry little wolf cubs <laughs> called Wilma and Walma.
3: Stop it, Jenny! <laughs> the young
2: lad's heart raced with the tales of fierce mother wolves and in a panic he turned and ran back to the town. He grabbed two of his pals and together they went back to the cairn as a rescue party. However, By the time the three youths had arrived at the cairn, the mother wolf had returned to her cubs. And so this makeshift rescue brigade hid in a thick bush, waiting for the mother wolf to leave the cairn once more. When she did and the coast was clear, one of the young lads stood guard at the entrance cairn as the other two went in to save the wee boy. However, from afar the mother wolf heard the cries of her pups and she ran like the wind back to her babies. The boy standing guard at the cairn heard the thundering of her paws as she approached and felt the whoosh as she darted past him, lunging for the opening of the cairn. But thinking fast as the blur flew by, he reached out and grabbed her tail. He held on tightly for dear life the wolf mum could see her puppies, but the boy was holding her too firmly for her to reach them. Inside the cairn, his companions shouted out, Why is it so dark? What's keeping the light from us? As the inner chamber had suddenly been cast in darkness, the cairn guard called back to them, If the hairy root of the wolf breaks, believe me, you'll know. Summoning all their strength, The two lads inside the cairn turned and made their way back up the chamber passageway and attacked the wolf while she was being held captive. One of them drew his knife and stabbed the mother wolf as she desperately struggled to protect her pups. It was not a noble victory, but it was a necessity for them. They saved the toddler, but the question of the wolf pups remained. Without their mother... The pups had no chance of survival, and so, with heavy hearts, the boys killed them and left them there in the care. That day, the wee toddler was returned to his mother, who was overjoyed to hold her baby safe in her arms, though it was said that the child was never quite the same after its three days with the wolves. Perhaps he was changed by an experience where human and beast blurred, He had been welcomed by the wolves, deserving of protection and warmth despite his species, and sometimes he would be seen gazing at the full moon, his eyes filled with sorrow. The town celebrated the return of the wee child and the death of the wolves, but the three young lads who had achieved this felt an aching understanding of what they had done. In small silences they remembered the cries of the cubs. Just as the mother had mourned the loss of her child, hadn't the she-wolf felt a dagger to her heart too when she heard the calls of her pups? While the human had returned to its loving mother, the wolves were left for the other world. And so the sun had set on the last wolves of Sutherland. Their story is not that of an evil beast brought down by heroes, but rather a mother wolf who sheltered a human child and was brutally killed for the deed.
3: Wow, Jenny, that's a really sad story. It's as though the mother wolf looking after the human infant is nature offering us this olive branch that we could coexist. The mother wolf is saying, Hey, I'm happy and willing to look after you. And the youths are saying, hey, you scare us just a little bit, so we're going to kill you and your pups. I think the original story is meant
2: to be happy and uplifting and a triumphant tale. Um, There's almost like the comedy part of the boy holding on to the wolf's tail. However, it is hard reading it now not to feel the profound consequences at the end of this story when the species is suddenly extinct in Scotland. The more well-known version of this story has a man named Polson as a great wolf hunter. It's very similar to the story I've just told, except it doesn't include a missing child. Instead, Polson sends his child and another boy into a wolf's lair to kill the cubs in there. And while they are in this process, the mother wolf returns. Polson grabs onto the mother wolf's tail in much the same fashion and then slaughters her with his knife. There's actually a stone erected to it just north of Brora, claiming that Polson killed the last wolf in 1700 in that area.
3: So Scotland was a very different place back then. Animals were resourced to be exploited and human interactions with nature were driven by dominance. On the other hand, I grew up on a farm with livestock and I understand the economical and emotional cost of seeing your animals dead because of predators, though where I grew up we just had badgers and foxes, not wolves. Either way, this story tells us of a very different relationship to what we see with the Ardross Stone the wolf carving which showed a clear respect for the wolf from that community and this seems to have completely dissipated a thousand years later when we see the folklore of the last wolf hunts there's just not the same respect for the animal There's one ongoing Wolf of Sutherland story that I was really excited by, Jenny. Have you heard of the Rogart bog beast found by a peat digger in a Sutherland croft? Oh, I haven't. Is this a bog body? Yes. I love
2: bog bodies, or really anything that's found in bogs. Peat bogs have this amazing ability to preserve things due to their low oxygen levels, natural acidity, and cool temperatures. These bogs are like another one of nature's archives, Annie. really getting into nature's archives today.
3: (laughs) Within nature's archives, what kind of bog findings are you thinking of, Jenny? Bodies.
2: Because across northern Europe, hundreds of bog bodies have been discovered in peat bogs. Peat bogs offer a very different environment to traditionally dug earth graves. And this results in a much higher preservation of tissue, and significantly less disruption of the bones. Though Scotland does have her fair share of bog bodies, Ireland is way more famous for them, with bodies that are thousands of years old being unearthed, at times with their skin and hair intact. If you haven't seen a picture of a bog body, I highly recommend you go and look them up now. They are hauntingly fascinating.
3: I find bog bodies absolutely intriguing, Because of all the strange processes that humans put corpses through in order to bury them, even in the modern age, no amount of embalming fluid can compare to a bog-standard peat bog.
2: (laughs) We need to do a full episode on bog bodies, Annie, because I could go on for days about them. They are like a human time capsule in the peat. And with some of the bodies, scientists have even been able to discern the last thing they ate from their stomach contents thousands of years after they ate it.
3: Well, the so-called bog beast of Rogart is indeed a bog body, but not the human kind. You see, in 2018, a peat digger noticed something strange approximately one and a half metres deep in the peat. And... They called the Local Heritage Society, who were really well qualified to support the removal of the suspected wolf body (sighs) from the peat. The skull, paws and parts of this beautiful golden pelt of this potential wolf were retrieved from the bog. Now, they were kept moist to ensure that they weren't shocked from being removed from the peat.
2: Uh, Yeah, this is a danger of removing a bog body from the bog. The body has formed a dependent relationship with the bog. It needs that peaty environment to keep its youth and keep it preserved. Otherwise, when it's removed, it will shrivel like a sun-dried tomato. The rapid exposure of the world beyond the bog introduces oxygen, bacteria and climate discrepancies that all cause rapid deterioration. Plus, by disturbing a bog body, who's to say you aren't awakening ancient bog ghosties, Annie? Carbon-dense peaty poltergeists.
3: (laughs) I always imagine bog bodies being removed from the bog being like the final chapter of the picture of Dorian Gray. (laughs) (laughs) When the, the painting is destroyed and all of these years suddenly catch up on Dorian Gray. However, I don't think the people who were digging up the wolf bog body were worried about the spirit of the wolf haunting them, more so the potential damage they would cause. The Pine Heritage Society respectfully looked after the wolf remains and they brought them to Inverness Museum where there's a conservation team who can properly care for corpses.
2: Ooh, this is quite exciting. I hadn't heard about this. So, when did they discover the wolf, and where can I see it?
3: Okay, well, there's another layer to this. As I said, it was discovered in 2018, and I remember seeing it on the news. So, when we were doing an episode on wolves, I knew I had to investigate. It did make national headlines upon its discovery, but there had been no updates since. So I emailed Inverness Museum to ask all my wolfy, bog-body-related questions. (laughs) I wanted to know the basics. How old was this body? Was it hundreds of years or thousands of years old? And how were they going to preserve this precious relic of Sutherland wolves? Those are all
2: great questions, Annie. However, I myself would have asked if removing the guardian wolf of Rogart had brought any misfortune to the area or awakened any suspected ancient curses. But, yeah, each to their own, I guess.
3: Well, to say I was shocked by the response was an understatement. Firstly, they gave me a description of the remains, and it matched a lot of what was in the news. The Vogart bog beast was mainly skeletal, though it had some hair and skin fragments still intact.
2: Oh, that's interesting. That's enough for a supernatural wolf guardian of the other world, if you know what I'm saying.
3: However, visual identification of the skull and analysis of the tissue suggested that it was significantly more likely that the wolf was actually a dog
2: oh no i don't believe this our ancient wolf
3: warden of the north is a dog instead of howling at the moon it is wagging its tail oh i'm actually so upset <laughs> however they did say that there were some skeletal anomalies which made identifying this species more difficult So I looked at an available picture of the jawbone and compared it to pictures of wolf and dog jawbones. Do you want to take a look?
2: All right, okay, let's see. Um, Okay, so the top of a wolf's jawbone is distinctly different from a dog, so it's quite clear difference in the jawbones. But looking at the bog body's jawbone, I, I, I can actually see what they mean because the shape of it at the top is sort of right in between what a dog's and a wolf's look like. So... I I
3: think there's still a chance this could be a will fanny. (gasps) Unfortunately, though, (laughs) we're going on a date, carbon dating, and this is where the next blow comes in. Oh, no. The corpse isn't several centuries or thousands of years old. It's from about 150 years ago. Around 1870, this was buried. The issue here is that wolves were extinct in Scotland long before that.
2: Oh, no. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. It could literally be the last, last, last wolf in Scotland. I still have hope that the last wolf met its fate in a bog in Sutherland.
3: Well, my guess is that this was actually the body of a farm dog that died and was then buried by its family. I mean, yeah, it is possible
2: that a dog could have got lost and stuck in a bog pool um, that was, you know, deeper than it looked and then sort of sunk to the bottom. And over time, it could have left the body deep in the peat, just, you know, waiting for a peat digger to find it. So you admit that it's a dog and not
3: a wolf, Jenny?
2: Uh, I mean, I I think you're probably right here, Annie. Um, this is far more likely a haunted ghost dog rather than a haunted ghost wolf. Although I think if there's anything we've learned, it's that peat is like a time machine. And I don't know, I feel like this wolf could well have found some sort of wolfy time wormhole and found itself in this bog.
3: Inverness Museum currently has the bog dog in their freezer, which from a curatorial standpoint is a really interesting place to be. If it was a wolf's body, then you would definitely want to keep it in a museum because this is such an iconic extinct animal of Sutherland with rich lore and cultural references. Yet, if well-meaning diggers deposited a 150-year-old farm dog in your freezer, I think there's maybe questions about why you shouldn't just rebury it in a pet cemetery.
2: I don't know. I think that's pretty heartless, Annie. There's much that this 150-year-old potential wolf, though likely dog, can tell us about human-animal interactions.
3: Like what, Jenny? Like, who's a good boy? (laughs) (laughs) With the last wolf in Scotland dead, the landscape was changed forever. The process that began with early Neolithic farmers was finally complete. We humans had won the battle against nature. But at what cost? That's a great question, Annie. Because by vanquishing
2: this most hated of foes, we unwittingly unravelled the very fabric of the Scottish landscape. Yes, we humans had already been tugging on this thread for millennia, But the extinction of the wolf signifies a key pivotal moment for the entire ecosystem. Because when it comes to discussing ecology and the ecological systems of an area, there are two very important words that are tied to the wolf, apex and keystone. An apex predator sits at the top of its food chain. Picture a clearing in the ancient Caledonian forest. It's filled with lush green grass And this grass supports a small family of happy rabbits. But every so often, stalking around the edge of the clearing, eyeing the rabbits greedily, is a grey wolf. It waits until a rabbit is within sight and boom. It springs out from its shrubby cover and eats the rabbit. Poor rabbit. That's nature, Annie. (laughs) And it's also a very simple food chain. Grass grows... Rabbit eats grass, wolf eats rabbit. But nothing eats the wolf. It has no natural predators. It is at the top of its food chain. It's an apex predator. That is until you bring humans into the mix. But before we do that, let's find out what a keystone species is. A keystone species is one which holds a critical, or key, role in supporting the workings of an ecosystem as a whole. If you remove this one species from the ecosystem, it can no longer function like it used to. So let's go back to our rabbits and let's bring humans into the mix. As we've been discussing, humans have been busy hunting and killing every single wolf they can. Eventually, the species is utterly wiped out. Now back in our lush clearing, the rabbits are grazing away quite happily. And what do you know? There's no wolves left to spring from the shadows and eat one every now and again.
3: Well, at least that's nice
2: for the rabbits. Well, it is and it isn't. (laughs) The populations now aren't being kept in check by the wolves, and so they get to doing what rabbits do best. And before you know it, their population has exploded. The little clearing is now positively hopping with happy rabbits. And this is great for the owl living in the tree nearby because it can just fly down and scoop up a fresh rabbit whenever it feels like it. And so all of this owl's little chicks survive into adulthood, and they all decide to stay in the area, because they have enough food from the rabbits to feed their own families. But there's one thing we're not considering here, Annie.
3: And what's that? The grass. Not the grass! (laughs) The grass. (laughs) See, the grass
2: can't grow fast enough to support all of the rabbits, And suddenly, the clearing is stripped bare. The large number of rabbits are foodless, and they can no longer survive. Their population suddenly crashes. Numbers plummet. Now this isn't just bad for the rabbits. It's also terrible for the many owl families living nearby. Because now there's not enough rabbits for them to feed all of their own population. And so it crashes too.
3: This is not a happy episode for animal families, and I love animal families. It's
2: not, you're right. And this is also very simplified and a bit silly. But you can see that because the wolf has gone, the rabbit and owl populations are now thrown way out of balance.
3: Don't forget the grass.
2: True, the grass is also out of balance. Now, if you extrapolate this to an entire complex ecosystem with an intricate food web, the booms and busts of various species start affecting the whole thing and it becomes anything but stable. Removing the wolf has thrown the whole equilibrium of nature out of whack. And this is because the wolf is a keystone species. Its presence kept the whole ecosystem in balance. Its absence means the entire ecosystem suddenly has to find a new equilibrium which is not always predictable.
3: Okay, so what happened in Scotland? Well, in Scotland, rabbits weren't the wolves'
2: main food source. Deer were. There are a few species of deer in Scotland, and up until the 1600s, their populations were kept in check by the many packs of wolves roaming through the forests. However, the difference between the hypothetical rabbit scenario and the real-life deer scenario is that nothing else eats deer. Have you ever seen an owl carry a deer off into the sunset, Annie?
3: No, no, I haven't. Didn't think so.
2: And so with the wolves gone, the deer have no natural predators, and therefore their population explodes. Another difference from the rabbit scenario is that despite this rapid population growth, there is no food shortage. Deers graze on grasses, sedges, heathers, and, very importantly, the shoots of young trees all of which are very plentiful in Scotland, meaning that deer numbers can just keep on growing and growing and growing.
3: Oh dear, things are tilting off balance again, aren't they? I can feel it. Was that pun intended? It was good. Yes, yes it was.
2: (laughs) And yes, things are being thrown off balance, because at this time the human population was also exploding, and huge areas of the ancient Caledonian forests were being felled to fuel this growth. Timber was used to build ships and rapidly expanding settlements, and with no wolves to keep the deer population in check, the ravenous deer hoovered up all the young forests that should have regrown where the old one was felled. If you add the boom in agriculture, sheep grazing, cattle grazing, and later on grouse moors, then the young forests don't stand a chance, and we are still struggling with the consequences of this today. It is estimated that there are currently between 360,000 and 400,000 deer roaming through Scotland. When you have this many deer wandering through forests and moorlands, actively searching out any young saplings and stripping them of their energy-rich buds, then there is just no chance for forests to regenerate. The result of centuries of this is a massive proliferation of Moorland in Scotland. Where the Caledonian forest once covered 20% of all of Scotland, it now covers just 0.2%. And where forests in general used to cover 90%, they now cover just 18%. But... Only 4% of this is native. Some of this loss is related to shifting climate, but the majority is down to human-related interference, be that felling for timber, clearing for agricultural land, or killing the wolves to protect livestock. Our actions have had an unimaginable impact on the natural ecosystem of the country. And that, Annie, is why we should reintroduce the wolf to Scotland.
3: Okay, yes, this debate has been increasing for a good few years now. And some landowners in Scotland are in the process of rewilding their estates. So they've began fencing the area off and planting and regenerating native forests. Deer are a massive issue for them as they eat all of the new growth, as you said. So some landowners want to reintroduce wolves onto their land... Not just to save costs on deer culling, but also to get their new ecosystems as close to their natural state as possible.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's one big landowner in Sutherland, actually, who has been really pushing for this for like a decade now. But unsurprisingly, the local folk who live on and around the estate aren't too excited about huge electric fences being put up or wolves near their livestock. Or even the fact that one person is able to make such sweeping decisions about a massive area of land that impacts them all. And I'll be honest, I completely get that. And whilst reintroducing the wolf to Scotland would be really cool, uh, it's also the wild camper and me's worst nightmare. I can barely deal with midges. Wolves would just, I'd, I'd never go outside again.
3: I strongly believe that rewilding should never be the choice of a single landowner. It has to be a community driven choice. Because the balance of power in favour of landowners already disconnects so many people from the Scottish landscape. Locals need to be at the centre of these decisions. However, Jenny, I have a fun
2: compromise
3: for you. Ooh, is it that we reintroduce wolves, but they only work nine to five? Unionised wolves, Jenny, that's the solution. <laughs> No, <laughs> not unionised wolves. I say instead of wolves, we reintroduce the Eurasian lynx to Scotland. They were also hunted to extinction hundreds of years ago, and they were also apex predators who hunted deer. Plus, they're big cats, so they're naturally far superior to the wolves. Oof, Annie coming in hot at the end of the episode
2: on big cat v big dog debate. <laughs>
3: You're just angry because you can't call the big cat Woolma.
2: (laughs) I am, actually, I am. (laughs) But Actually, I think this is a great compromise, but I'm sure that, like with wolves, livestock owners will still be concerned that their animals will be easy prey, which once again takes us back to the literally thousands of years old problem. How do we humans coexist with nature without destroying the delicate balance of the environment?
3: Great question, Jenny, but unfortunately I see the ticking clock and I don't think we have time to discuss that complex matter in this episode. No, you are right. Um, But I do
2: just want to end on two fun tidbits. The first is that currently, silently slipping through the dense Scots pine forest of the Cairngorms is a pack of grey wolves. They are, however, fenced in. They are, however, fenced in. As they are held in captivity in the Highland Wildlife Park. But if you get the chance to go and visit them, you definitely should. It's a really cool place. And secondly, I have heard through the grapevine of very trustworthy people's sisters, friends, roommates that there are already wolves roaming free in Scotland. That some landowners have decided to secretly release the animals back into the wild and that they're already out there. So if you see a mysterious beast darting across the road in front of you, or maybe hear an eerie yowl while camping in the forest, let me know. I'd live for a bit of eco-terrorism.
3: Jenny, my fact-checking alarms are going off and I don't think this is reliable information at all. Oh no, no, it's not reliable at all, but it is fun! (laughs) (laughs) Yay for fun. All right... (laughs) Oh, on that bizarre note, thank you all so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. If you are enjoying our show, then we would love it if you give us a wee five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us, we independent podcasters, get visibility in the charts. And what also helps
2: we independent podcasters like us is Patreon. By signing up to our Patreon you get access to lots more Scottish content while also supporting us financially. We are a small creative business trying to get by so each and every Patreon sign up means so so much to us. And with that in mind a massive thank you to all our wonderful super fans on Patreon especially our newest members Kate and Steve welcome.
3: I like to think of you all as supernatural fairy wolves. Now, much like the fairy dogs that we covered in the last episode, as fairy wolves are green, but we are also considered to be the boss monsters of the fairy realm, one of the most powerful creatures of the other world. We eat like in lasagna and we drink wolfy sours. <laughs> Both of those sound pretty good,
2: actually. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. All right, until next time, slánchevá.
3: Slánchevá. Oh.
2: It's the grave-robbing wolves that seem to have dug themselves further into the cultural imagination. I see what you did there with the dug themselves in. That's a good pun. I like that. <laughs> pun intended.
3: <laughs> in Adra, in Adra in Adra in Adra, in Adra What if it's Adra It's not Adra <Adra-Chilles>.
2: Live. <laughs> Bolder, laugh harder, love (laughs) cairnfully. You didn't commit to that. Do you know what keeps me awake at night, Annie? What keeps you awake at night, Jenny? The fact that you said your favorite place was in the bones. What does that even mean? What what bones?
3: Jenny, you've been to my house. You know that I've got my bone collection.
2: Yeah, well, you keep this secret. You're always making fun of my rock collection, but we never bring up Annie's whale bones.
3: <laughs> if I see a really impressive bone on the beach, it it makes my day. And then also, there's this, there's this one time I find the coolest bone on the beach. I was so excited about it, but it still had a tiny bit of flesh on it. So I hid it in a dune, thinking I'll come back for this with a big bag and I can put it in, you know, a plastic bag or something and I can preserve it and I'll be so happy with my bone. And I went back maybe two hours later and the tide had just come in and I don't know where my bone had gone. Either someone had taken it or the tide had taken it, but I was devastated. It does keep me awake at night thinking, why didn't I just bite the bullet and carry this disgusting fleshy whalebone home when I had the chance
2: I am sorry that I ever even brought this up I don't even know what to say to that story
3: (laughs) (laughs) I remember one time I caught you doing exercises with one of my bones you were using it as a weight and I was like no Jenny this is a precious bone (laughs) we don't use this as a weight I was
2: like I think there's still some flesh on this (laughs)